Good morning. We're working our way through Paul's letter to the Romans, and what we've been reminding ourselves um, as we do so is that these letters are like um, two-way conversations, but we can only listen to one side. We only can hear what Paul is saying to them, and so we kind of have to try to think about, I wonder what they're saying to him first. And so before we listen to Paul, let's remind ourselves of what was happening on the other side of the line. Um, Jews constituted about 10% of the Roman Empire, and what was happening when uh, Jewish Christians were forced out of Jerusalem into the Roman Empire, they populated cities in the Roman Empire where other Jews already lived. And many Jews could not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And when these Jews who had been in Jerusalem and did believe it, when they moved into these cities where more traditional Jews existed, there was a lot of conflict and um, indicating we do believe Jesus was the Messiah. Of course he wasn't the Messiah. And this became such a problem that the Emperor Claudius in about 40 AD said, okay, that's all I can stand. And so he banished Jews from Rome. As I'm tired of all this conflict, he died about four to five years later. And at that time, a new emperor came on the scene. And because a new emperor was on the scene, the edict of the prior emperor was null and void. And so Jews began to come back into Rome. And what happened is that the Churches where these house churches where Gentiles and Jewish Christians had been meeting for five years, the Jewish Christians weren't there. And now Jewish Christians are coming back. We described it. It's like if you had an older brother or sister who went away to college and they were kind of a little bit know-it-all-ish and bossy. And so you had the luxury of being without them. And now here they come back and they're telling you what to do and what to eat and when you go to bed and stuff like that. Kind of what's happened to the church in Rome with the older brothers, the Jewish Christians and sisters returning. Um, Jews believed that receiving the commandments from God made them superior to the pagan Gentiles. And I'll tell you what, Rome was decadent. They were pagan. And what these Jewish Christians, it was easy for them to believe, is that their virtue, their being more virtuous, made them nearer and dearer to God. And they kind of flaunted that over their Jew, their Gentile Christian um, church mates. Um, Paul reminds them, though, the Jewish Christians, of the faith that founded Judaism. It takes them all the way back to the beginning, to the father of Judaism, Abraham. He talks about Abraham's faith. We're going to learn three things. Three things about Abraham's faith in particular and Christian faith in general. Number one, that it's centered in in God. Faith is centered in God. Two, that it claims God's promises. And three, it's challenged by problems. So we're going to learn three things about faith. That it's centered in God, claims God claimed God's promises, and challenged by problems. Um, if you have your worship folder, we're just going to 
It's a long passage. We're going to take it bit by bit as we walk through it. Let's walk through it together and see what we can learn. First, Abraham's faith centered in God. Let's look at verses 1 through 2. Paul writes, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. God introduced himself to Abraham, just showed up, and uh, he introduced himself really to mankind through Abraham. He was the point of entry. And what God promised Abraham was this. I'm just going to read it. It's not your worship folder. This is what he said. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And this is what God promised him. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Interestingly, the text does not tell us a lot about Abram. We don't have any indication that he In fact, he probably believed in a bunch of gods. He was a polytheist before God introduced himself to him. Um, What that means is that Abram wasn't chosen, apparently, we don't know, for any kind of virtue on his part. God found him and said, I'm going to introduce myself to mankind through you and And that's what happened. God promised Abram something, and Abraham believed it. When we think about faith, a lot of times we look at faith and try to determine how strong it is. Uh, Faith, you can't really determine the strength of faith by looking at faith. Faith is only as strong as its object. You're putting your faith in the chairs, and your faith is kind of warranted because the chairs are pretty solid. If it was a weak, flimsy chair, then you could really believe, I believe this chair is going to hold me up. But if the chair is wimpy and the the legs are wobbly, it's not going to hold you up. I don't care how great your faith is. Faith is only as good as its object. Strong faith in a weak object is not very helpful, is it? Even weak faith in a strong object is 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 okay, because the faith is only as good as its object. So faith then, the faith of Abraham, Abram, wasn't about the strength of Abraham's faith. It was about the strength of the object of Abraham's faith, God and his promises. And because God is a worthwhile object of faith, it worked fine. What does God promise? We know what he promised to Abraham. To Abram, he promised that he would be the one to and through whom God would bless the world. What does he promise us? And you understand why that's important. 
because faith is rooted in promises. And in order to exercise faith, we have to know the promises that we're placing our faith in, right? That's how faith works. Faith is rooted in promises. So what does God promise us? And let's talk about that. He, what we're going to find, God promises that he declares people to be righteous. And the surprising thing is, he declares ungodly people to be righteous. Look what it says in verse 4 and 5. It says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. What Paul's trying to do when these Jewish Christians are coming back into these Gentile Jewish house churches, they are boasting a little bit about, again, we have a superior law and um, we are more virtuous in general than Gentiles are. And what Paul's trying to do, he's trying to turn down the volume of their boasting because it's not helpful. And what he he does, he boasting would be appropriate if being declared righteous was a paycheck. But what Paul indicates is that being declared righteous is not a paycheck that you receive. It's a gift you receive. A paycheck and a gift are very different things. Would you agree? A gift is something that is unearned. Otherwise, it's not a gift. A paycheck is earned. When Tell you what, if you get paid this past Friday or the Friday before, did you write a, a thank you note to your boss? I just want to let you know how much I appreciate getting that paycheck. I, I It really brought a tear to my eye. Thank you so much for pay. You would never do that. Why? You earned it. And Paul's making the same point. It's that's what being declared righteous is. It's not something where you submit your time card. Okay, God, here is. You'll notice carefully on my giving record, you'll notice how much I gave, and you'll notice how much I attended church, and you'll notice as well the different things that I was involved in. And um, I humbly provide this for you and and then well that and then if God says boy that is really impressive I'm going to give you I'm going to declare you to be righteous and if that's how it worked you would have something to boast about because if I looked at your time card and my time card didn't have all the stuff that yours did I you would be in a position to boast and I would not but that's not how the way that's not the works being declared righteous is not a paycheck. It's a gift. Paul clarifies in verse 5 that righteousness is based on believing God's promises. Um, where it says, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, His faith is credited as righteousness. Those who believe God's promise are declared righteous. And what state 
was Abram, Abraham in when he received God's promise and believed it? He was a polytheist. He was not an especially godly person. Therefore, righteousness is something that's declared to the individual who believes. And the individual doesn't have to be godly when they believe. And it's, again, what we're to believe, that God declares ungodly people to be righteous when they believe his promise. That's what Paul is saying. What does it mean to be declared righteous? Well, we talked about how it works. It's a gift that happens if you believe God's promise. Let's talk about what does it mean to be declared righteous. Look what he says in verse 7 and 8. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. What does it mean to be declared righteous? Again, we've talked about how it works, but now we're talking about what it means. And here's what it says in this verse. To be counted as righteous means lawless deeds are forgiven. The things that you've done that violate the commandments, those are forgiven. It means, secondly, that sins are covered over. That God atones for them. That's what atone means, covers. It means that sin is not counted. So it means, what happens if God declares you righteous? Here's what it means. That your lawless deeds are forgiven. Your sin is covered. And God does not count your sin. He's not saying, whoa, you had a real tough week, didn't you? I said, whoa, you know, yeah, so you put a little water in your basement, and I'll tell you what, it looks like your tongue goes on, you know, you say some things you probably shouldn't say. Boy, I'll tell you, we said what? How many times? Oh, man, that's amazing. Um, Really a field day, didn't you, this week, didn't you? That would be true if God was counting your sin. But what it says, if you're declared righteous, that doesn't happen. And that's why it's talked about as being a blessing. It's kind of a blessing, isn't it? God not counting your sin. Um, These promises are found... In Psalm 32, the rabbis of Jesus' day, they believed, oh, sure, this kind of forgiveness is available if you're Jewish. And Paul says, uh-uh, it's not true. It's not for Jewish people. It's for everyone who does what Abraham did. And what Abraham did was believe the promise. That's what it is. And look what it says, uh, verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised. The circumcised would in that time have been Jews. Is it for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? 
it was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. You understand the point? If he was declared righteous after he was circumcised, then you have to be circumcised and become a Jew in order to be declared righteous, right? But if he was declared righteous before he was circumcised, before he became Jewish in that way, then you don't have to be Jewish to be declared righteous. And that's the point Paul is making. Um, he says the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. What it's saying is that it's, 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 he's saying the same thing, but he's really weaving this argument. Because he wants the Jewish Christians to be clear about why they've been included. It's because they believe in what God promised through his son. The argument is simple. If Abraham was righteous before his circumcision, circumcision can't be essential to righteousness, right? Um, if circumcision is unnecessary, don't need to be Jewish to be righteous. Faith alone is needed to inherit the blessing. Um, when Paul talks about the influence of law, which is summed up in the Ten Commandments. Um, here's what he says. Look at verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, Faith is null, and the promise is void. Understand what it's saying. If God blesses those who comply with the commandments and says, you're declared righteous, then the promise is null and void, because faith, being declared righteous is not believing in promises, it's behaving according to the commandments. But Paul says that's not the way it works. Look at what he says. For the law brings wrath. The law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. The law brings wrath. Law triggers God's wrath. How does that work? What happens is we have a sinful disposition. And we might not, if we didn't have law, we would have a sinful disposition, but it wouldn't be Conscious disobediences. So if the law provides a line, there's a line right here. Let's say that's a line, that that's law. Now, the fact is, I might have a sinful disposition, but you can't point to anything. But if there's a line, now I cross it. Now I crossed a line. What this is called is transgression. This is transgression. Now, was I a sinner over here? Was I a transgressor? No, because I didn't cross a line. But if you give me a law and I cross a line, now am I a transgressor? Yeah, conscious disobedience of definite divine commands. On this side, you might ask me, Mike, are you a sinner? And I'd say, well, fortunately not. 
<laughs> but if you throw a law down and I transgress that law, you say, Mike, you a sinner. Uh, oh boy, look at that sun. Isn't that wonderful to see the sun out there? And, you know, so I'm, I'm not going to want to have a discussion because the fact is I crossed a line. And when you know you've crossed a line, how do you feel? Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. We're conscious of having crossed lines. What does that do as far as your sense of you and God? At some point, we understand because I crossed a line, God's angry. The law brings wrath. And that's, that's what it's supposed to do. Within Judaism, I'm going to read a couple of passages. And if you don't, yeah, you might fall asleep for a little bit. I'll wake you up in a little bit. Intentionality was an issue in Judaism. Again, there was forgiveness in Judaism if you unintentionally crossed a line. If you unintentionally crossed, I didn't know that line was there. Or I didn't know that doing this meant crossing a line. Now, if you didn't know that it was wrong, or if you didn't know that this behavior constituted crossing a line, then you could be forgiven in Judaism. It was unintentional. If you knew this was a line, and if you crossed it, again, interestingly, you couldn't kill anything to be forgiven. You couldn't sacrifice anything. The only sins that could be atoned for in Judaism were unintentional. You're saying, that's not true. Listen. I'm reading from Numbers 15, where it's describing the original giving of the law. This is what it says. Numbers 15:22. Now, if you unintentionally, okay, if you unintentionally fail to keep any of these commands the Lord gave Moses, any of the Lord's commands to you through him, from the day the Lord gave them and continuing through the generations to come, and if this is done unintentionally, without the community being aware of it, then the whole community is to offer a young bull for a burnt offering as an aroma pleasing to the Lord, along with the prescribed grain offering and drink offering and a male goat for a sin offering. So here's the deal. If you sin unintentionally, the whole community comes together and says, hey, listen, man, I understand what it's about. No, you didn't know. You didn't know. So, hey, I tell you what, let's get the goat. Let's kill the animal. Let's bring the grain offering. You know, you and God are good. What about intentional sin? Someone says, now this is Numbers 15, same chapter, a little bit later. But if anyone sins defiantly, defiantly means just intentionally. That's the word. It's the opposite of unintentional. Intentional. Knew it was wrong. You did it anyways. Of course, we don't sin intentionally. So just pretend that you understood this. Okay, just pretend. I know. It's always a mistake when we do it. I understand. But if anyone sins intentionally, whether native-born or alien, 
blasphemes the Lord. And that person must be cut off from his people. Can't kill anything. No goats. No sin offering. Goes on because he has despised the Lord's word and broken his commands. That person must surely be cut off. His guilt remains on him. And then it gives an example of someone who crossed the line. Listen to what it says. Verse 32. While the Israelites were in the desert, a man was found gathering wood on the Sabbath day. Those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly, and they kept him in custody because it was not clear what should be done to him. I mean, it's not like he killed anybody. It says, don't keep holy the Lord's day, and you're not supposed to do any work, and this guy gathered some wood. We don't know what to do with him, and they brought him to Moses and Aaron, and they were the ones that were to figure it out, and so they came before God, and here's what the Lord said to Moses. The man must die. I'm not kidding. I'm not just going to say that's not what it says. That's what it says. The man must die. Why does he have to die? Why can't you kill an animal? It was intentional. The whole assembly must stone him outside the camp. So the assembly took him outside the camp and stoned him to death. As the Lord commanded Moses. How does God deal with unintentional? Let's not. We know how he deals with unintentional sin, perhaps. How about an intentional sin? You know, we're tempted to think that Jesus can get punished for intentional sin. Sure, you can't kill a lamb or a goat, but if Jesus dies, his blood is enough. Is that in line with Judaism? Jesus is the Lamb of God, surely. But there's no atoning for intentional sin. How does God deal with intentional sin then? He must, because he declares people righteous who believe. You remember what righteousness, you remember what it means to be declared righteous? Your lawless deeds are forgiven. Your sins are covered. God doesn't count. How does that work? What did he do? What seems to, but there's, it says in verse 15, where there is no law, there is no transgression. Without a law to transgress, there is no transgression. How does God deal with sin? By dealing with the law the sin is based upon. If you are under the authority of law, are you guilty of sin and transgression when you transgress it? What if I did this? And you're no longer under the authority of law. Can you be held accountable for a law that doesn't exist? It's a good question though, isn't it? It's a good question. No. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. Uh, that's what it 
That's what it says. Um, by dealing, well, you know why Jesus died and rose again? He died and he was raised. And here's what the Bible says. We're going to find this when we get to Romans, Romans 7. Listen to what it says. Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to men who know the law? Listen to what it says. That the law, the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives. The law has authority over a man only as long as he lives. So let's, let's say this. Jesus dies and rises again. Is Jesus under the authority of law? He died and rose. The law's hold on Jesus was only in operation until Jesus died, right? Here's a question. What happens in if in God's eyes you are crucified with Christ and die with Christ and are raised with Christ in God's eyes? If you are co-crucified, co-dead, co-buried, co-raised, then are you under the jurisdiction of law anymore? No, you died in Christ. What does that mean? What does it mean? Your lawless deeds are forgiven. Where there is no law, there's no transgression. Your sins are covered. He's not counting. That's what it means. I'd call that a blessing. And you know why it comes? If you believe it. Do you believe Jesus was sent to die and rise? To come out from under the authority of a law that brings wrath? Do you believe that's why God sent his son? Not to beat him to death, but to cancel the law. So that you could be dead with him, rise with him above the level of law. Do you believe that's what he came to do? You believe it and it settles it. You declared righteous in his eyes. There's two words for how you deal with sin. Again, again, this, you might fall asleep. If you didn't fall asleep during the reading of those things, these are, these are big words, so. <coughs> Expiation and propitiation. Oh, spell those, Mike, will you? Yeah, right. <laughs> propitiation, there are two ways to deal with a sinner. Expiation is when you focus on the offending act. You do something with the sin. So expiation focuses on the sin, removing the sin, dealing with the sin. Propitiation doesn't focus on the sin, it focuses on the offending God, the offended God. So propitiation kills something so that God can look at it and say, okay then. I took it out on my son. Now I don't have to take it out on you. That's propitiation. Is that what happened at the cross? No. No. That's not what happened at the cross. Expiation is what happened at the cross. How do I deal with the offending act? By removing the law the offending act is based upon. Done. Done. Jesus didn't die to placate a wrathful God. 
He died so that we could be out from under law. I want to imagine, I always pick on Travis. Say Travis goes to the Middle East, and I've done this illustration before, but say he goes to the Middle East and he, he's accused of breaking Islamic law. And he's going to die. There's two ways I could rescue him. Let's say um, Brett learns about this and feels that uh, pick somebody other than Brett. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no. So let's say Brett says, you know what, Mike, I heard that Travis is going to, I heard that he got into some trouble in Iraq and Iran, and you know what, I, I don't want him to die. And so what I'm going to do, I'm going to offer myself, and I'm going to die in his place. So let's say Brett then books passage, goes over to Iran, allows himself to be manacled and beheaded, whatever, and then will Travis go free? He did. Brett took his place. He gets to go free. That's one way you can liberate somebody sentenced to death. There's another way. Brett's a tough guy. Let's say if he gets some of his buddies, Brian, Chuck, some of these good old boys, and they go over and have an armed militia. Let's say that they were able to overthrow the government of Iraq and Iran. And let's say they take Islamic law and tear it up. So a lot Islamic law is no longer binding. Does Travis go free? Which one of those two pictures describes what happened at the cross? Jesus overthrew the law or he succumbed to it and was dead underneath it? He tore it up because where there is no law, there is no transgression. Expiation is what happened at the cross, not propitiation. The law brings wrath. Sin is not counted when there is no law. That's why Jesus died. So, if you're counted as righteous because you believe this, believe that's what happened at the cross, um, your sins are no longer counted. Not that we act perfectly, but would have been counted as sin is no longer counted as sin. If you're counted as righteous, God will not count your misbehavior as sin. It's not that God forgives it. He doesn't count it in the first place because where there is no law, there's no transgression. Sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Wait a minute, Mike. Oh. I got a question. Tough, but here's a tricky question. It doesn't have an easy answer. Ready? Do children of God sin? Do children of God sin? All depends who you're asking. 
If you ask God, do children of God sin, what is he going to say? Read the second one. Sin is not taken into account. If you ask God, do children of God sin, what is he going to say? What is he going to say? No. Do you do things perfectly? No. Do you sin in my eyes? Yes. You cut off people. You, When people come and they're trying to get into the lane up ahead and you've been standing there for 20 and 25 minutes and they try to come right... Okay, maybe that's not your problem. I mean, I'm projecting a little bit. Um, we sin. In God's eyes, do you sin? No. Sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Um, hmm. What about confession? Are we, are we supposed to confess our sins? What happens when you confess your sins? When you confess your sins, I want you to be careful here. Is there a guilty verdict? And when you say, God, I, I'm sorry, I, I sin, please forgive me. And then does God say, okay, then, there's a buck of forgiveness. Okay, just don't get, don't hit me up for forgiveness again, Travis. Really, I just, you know, I'm, I'm giving you a buck's worth of forgiveness. All the, is that how it works? Is there a trans, is there a transaction? Do you need to get forgiven by God? Sin is not taken into account when there is no law. So there's no transaction. If he's not counting, there's no transaction. Right? You say, wait, 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 time, Mike. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Are you saying confession's wrong? No. Let's understand what's happening, and God's not giving us something. We are understanding what we've already been given. That's what happens with sin. That's what happens with confession. You know what confess means? To say the same thing as. That's what it means. The Greek word is hama legeo. Hama, the same. Legeo, to say. Confession is to say the same thing. What does God say about your sin? It's not taken into account. What do you say when you're confessing then? God, you know what? I messed up. Thank you that this sin is not taken into account. You're not counting this. You know what it means? Another way to say it, the new covenant promises, you know what this means, God? I did go online. I did look at something I shouldn't do. I did cut the person off. I did do this. I did do that. What it means, if you're not counting, you're still in me. You're still with me. And good's still ahead of me, guaranteed. I didn't sacrifice anything by what just happened. I didn't change your attitude towards me because you didn't count it. What would happen if you believed that? You know what we tempted to do? Well, you know, I'll tell you what, Mike, I'll sin it up. <laughs> if you really believe it, you know what will happen? You'll start to love him. And you'll be less critical and harsh with yourself. And you'll be less critical and harsh with others. You'd stop saying terrible things to yourself that God isn't saying to you. God is not saying to you, you worthless. Because sin is not taken into account when there is no law. 
That's not what he's saying. Who's saying it? I think we say it to ourselves. Why? Because we don't understand the basics. You know what this is? This might seem, oh, Mike, this is, this is basic. This is basic. This is what it means to be a Christian. It means your lawless deeds are forgiven. They're covered. Your sin is not taken into account. This isn't theology 308. And I'm not angry. I just don't know why we don't hear this. There's passages that talk about, you say, yeah, Mike, it talks about contrition. Yeah, it does. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, 1 John 1, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. You know what John's dealing with here? It's not dealing with, he's not trying to get people to confess. It's not that they're not confessing their sins. That's not the problem here. You know what they're saying? They're confessing that they're not sinners. That's the problem. They're saying, I don't sin. Oh, really? Really? And why are they doing that? Why would anybody push that stuff away? Because they didn't understand the basics. Why would you try to hedge if you know you're forgiven? You know what ends up happening if you believe this? Your, your times with God when you confess your sin change. It's not, you don't, God, I did it. You're waiting for the slap. There's no slap coming. You know what, you know what starts to happen? You know what, God? I don't know why I did that. And you start to think about your thoughts and feelings. You start to look, and rather than just call it bad, you start to think about it. God, why did I do that? I really felt, and then, you know what that, you know what, you know what starts to happen? <laughs> Get this. You start to have a conversation with him about why you're doing what you're doing. You know what that sounds a lot like? A relationship. That's exactly what happens. It changes the way you deal with him. You start to want to talk to him. Rather than throw penalty flags at yourself, you try to understand yourself and others. You're able to be gentler with yourself and others. That's the way it works. Confession is saying what God says. Um, changes the character of dealing with sin. Um, Abraham's faith was challenged by problems as well. Um, Abraham believed God at a time where when it was no longer a human possibility for him to know he would have kids. Um, so here we, we're going to zero in here and we're going to finish this. Uh, faith, we learned a couple things, is trusting God to be the promise maker and the promise keeper. Um, when you believe God's promises, it's counted to us as righteousness. Um, what, what good is it to believe this? You know, 
Here's what he says. Jesus said, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? What he's pointing out is how your Father takes care of birds. It goes on, if that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? Or you'll live? That's how God deals with grass. You say, Mike, what's the point? I want you to imagine you're going into a judge's chambers. Okay? Imagine that. You've done things worthy of death. You wonder how you're going to be sentenced. You go in. If you are going in and you're wondering if you're going to be sentenced, my thought is that you're probably not going to appreciate the judge's aviary. You know, the little house with birds. My sense is, if you're going there wondering whether you're going to die or not, you're not going to say, hey, boy, you did a wonderful job with those birds. If I told you that, Judge, I'm just looking. And his flower garden. You're probably not going to appreciate his flower garden, are you? But if the judge says, you know what, I'm not counting your sins, and we're okay. You know what you might do then? You might notice how he takes care of birds. And you might notice his flower garden. You know what God wants you to do? He wants you to believe he'll care about you. It's very difficult to believe that if you believe you're guilty before him. Would you agree? And what does he do? That's what he does. He sends his son, and when you understand why he sent him, so your lawless deeds will be forgiven, so your sins are covered, so he will not count your sin against you, so that you might trust him to care about you the way he cares about birds and the way he cares about grass and flowers. Right, come on up. We're going to have a closing song. Father, thank you for um, your purposes and why you sent your son. It's, it's, we know what he did, but we don't, not always clear about why. Many believe that Jesus died to placate your wrath. And it seems Paul understood that that wasn't really it. It was to take away that thing which is the foundation of sin. And when you take it out of the way, there is no transgression. Sin is not counted. What you would have us believe is that you declare us to be righteous. And you would have us believe that our relationship with you is solid. We don't need to duck. And that becomes the basis of loving you and loving others. It's hard for us. We hear competing things. I pray you'd help us to be clear. And when we do confess um, that we would land where you would have us to land, that you're still in us. When we do messy things, stupid things, you're still with us. Good's still ahead of us, guaranteed. You would have us be mindful of that. Believe that. You're still in us. You're still with us. Good's still ahead of us, guaranteed. I pray that it would be something that you would help us to become clear of. 
as we keep coming back, that we would recognize and believe, we would root our faith in the fact that you're still in us. You're still with us. And good's still ahead of us. Guaranteed. Because where there is no law, there is no transgression. And sin is not counted when there is no law. Thank you for good news. In Jesus' name. Amen.